0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Rachel Gillum, author of Muslims in a Post-9/11 America: A Survey of Attitudes and Beliefs and Their Implications for US National Security Policy. Rachel Gillum is a visiting scholar at Stanford University's Immigration Policy Lab. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to write this book?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this book um is was really driven by my interest in um looking at counterterrorism policy, actually. Um, my background, I had previously worked for the government in this space and um really wanted to understand sort of what was driving some of these policies. Um So as I was, you know, diving into this question, the book, as you'll see, one of the things that's really trying to address is, you know, the many public fears that surround Muslim Americans. Um, And and we can talk more about what those fears are. But the reason why it was important to look at those fears is to see whether there was any data to support or to justify those fears, because we see a lot of our security policies are based on some of these common assumptions. So I really wanted to explore that in this work with a data-driven approach. Um, And and so that's really where this book started.
1: And you mentioned the data-driven approach. You start off in the book talking about some of these common assumptions or misperceptions, and there were some data limitations you faced. How did that lead to the design of the survey that you conducted of the Muslim American community?
0: No, that's a great question. So just to put a little framing around it, you know, looking, um, you know, at the time of writing this book, you know, several years after 9-11, but, you know, approaching the election of Donald Trump around that time, we saw that more than half of Americans believe that Islam was more likely than other religions to encourage violence. Um, More than half of all Americans believe that Muslims were anti-American. About a third believe that they should be subject to more scrutiny than other religions, so on and so forth um and again there was really relatively little data to even examine whether these perceptions were true or based in fact um and so as i mentioned i really wanted to assess these but of course there's there's not always a silver bullet how you can sort of answer each one of these questions and so what i did in the book is really rely on several um, sets of data the primary source was a national survey of muslim americans Um, representative of the population um, across the country. And so with that large data set, I'm able to really, you know, examine the attitudes and perspectives and um, backgrounds of Muslims around the country, look at different segments of the community, because it's not a monolith and really understand sort of some of the, not only the questions about these perceptions, but also other issues around sort of how Muslims are experiencing the post 9-11 environment. How has this scrutiny on their community shaped their view of, of their own community, of the broader American community, of of government and law enforcement. So I'm able to explore all those questions with this data. But in addition to the survey, I also interview hundreds of Muslims around the country. Um, it really was important to not only um, sort of figuring out what are the relevant questions to ask, but how to ask them sort of what's on the forefront of Muslims' mind, different segments of the community. Um, And in addition to that, did focus groups, um, hosted conversations, observed conversations, um, many conversations with law enforcement directly, national security leaders, to really put together um, a full picture, trying to get at some of these very difficult questions. And your
1: results yield a very diverse range of experiences. And I was hoping you could give us a high-level snapshot of the breadth of what encompasses Muslim Americans and how that might challenge popular notions of, of who is a Muslim in America.
0: Exactly. No, that's a, great, that's a great question. So typically, I think when most Americans think about Muslims um, in the United States, they tend to think about Arab Americans. Um, which is a very significant part of the community. But um, Arabs do not, in fact, even make up the majority of Muslims in the United States. We see large segments of the community that are actually African-American, um, um, African-American. And they've been Muslims for generations. Some are converts. Um, we also see, um, you know, African immigrants to the United States. Um, we have a large segment that is from um Southeast Asia, um, Pakistani descent, Indian, Bangladeshi, so on and so forth. Um, Iranian, I mean, it's just such a diverse community. Um, it's, it's the most diverse religious community in the United States. We see many languages spoken, many variants of Islam practice. Um, and, and, and this all differs across generations. So it's, I certainly think it's worth taking the time to really look at these different segments, look how these different groups have experienced the post-9-11 environment. So the book really does aim to explore some of that diversity.
1: And I wanted to touch on the methodology of the book using the survey and your interviews. And we just talked a little bit about the diversity of Muslims in America, but you also compared Muslim attitudes for example, the Muslim attitudes towards violence with other segments of the American population. Can you talk about how you approached this information, not only from looking at the population you were studying, but also putting that population in the broader context?
0: Thank you for that question. Yes. So there had been some studies in the past that tried to answer this question about Muslims' attitudes towards violence, and they would simply ask questions about you know, how, when can violence be justified, so on and so forth. But I didn't think that those findings in isolation were particularly helpful because certainly you'll always have some percentage of the population that feels that violence can be justified in certain um, situations and another portion that believes it can never be justified. So what I did was I ran the same survey questions to uh, a population of Muslims as well as a population of non-Muslims. And basically what I found was that Muslims were no different, um, you know, controlled for all the different variables. And we can talk more about that, but on average, than than Christians, for example, in when they felt that violence could be justified. Um, And so it was important to put that in context so that we can, you know, understand sort of what are common attitudes around, again, when violence can be justified and, And I use different ways to ask the question in different contexts to sort of uh, flesh out sort of what we're seeing, um, you know, from the data.
1: Were there other observations that you found um, similar to this that putting Muslim attitudes or experiences in broader context uh, revealed more about maybe even what's more of an American belief rather than a, a Muslim or a Christian belief?
0: Yeah, there there were several hints at this. Um, you know, suggestion around it being an American belief versus, you know, a Muslim belief. So, um, you know, certainly across, you know, different questions beyond violence, but just asking questions around um law enforcement and other things, we see that those who are born and raised in the United States, you know, Muslim and non-Muslim, um tend to be more willing to challenge authority, challenge Um, you know, government um, say that it's okay to retaliate against, you know, law enforcement if they are, you know, using violence against your group. We see that in both Muslims and non-Muslims, for example. Um, We see that, um, you know, those born and raised in the United States tend to get less trustful of some government institutions or, or are less trustful than, again, some folks that are born born abroad. So we d- I d- absolutely do see some of those patterns that are very interesting that we wouldn't otherwise observe if we didn't have sort of the other population to compare and contrast against.
1: And after 9-11, you describe a series of shift in policy at all levels of government that resulted in scrutiny of Muslims. Can you talk more about what unfolded at that time?
0: You know, we're having this interview on 9-11, 2020. Uh, the world looks so different. It's been 19 years. It is hard to remember what it was like on that day. Um, those of us, you know, who were around certainly remember. Um, and it was a very scary time. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, so I just want to start with that to to say that, you know, it was not clear what was going on. It wasn't clear where the net th- next threat was coming Um, a lot of concern. And so, um, you know, we had, you know, given the unprecedented attack, we uh, engaged as a government, as a country in some unprecedented measures. And so um, generally speaking, without sort of going through the litany of of policies, we sort of turned to a guilty until proven innocent (laughs) framework, sort of, you know, sort of turned on its head how we normally approach these things. And you saw um you know many um folks of Middle Eastern descent sort of being picked up by law enforcement and um, definitely detained without being charged. we There was reports of abuse um, in my conversations with Muslims around the country, there was also anecdotal um, mentions of you know individuals who went to law enforcement to offer tips to offer suggestions and were themselves detained. Um, off of just you know suspicion based on their background. Um, so we we saw a lot of confusion, a lot of sort of um, over, over I would say now we can say looking back overreach of of again, going after Muslims. And then we saw some other institutionalization of policies where um, Muslims, for example, who um, entered the country, were tracked while they were here, had to report into um, the Department of Homeland Security under the National Security Entry Exit um, Registration System. Um, And then later down the line, we saw, um, you know, as we engaged in the global war on terror, we saw some significant legislation passed that um, many civil libertarians would argue has really eroded some of our um, core fundamental rights, has allowed the government to surveil the American population um, in an unprecedented way. Um, And that, you know, many point out that these type of policies are difficult to reverse, and many of them have not been reversed. So we're sort of um, still living with some of the consequences of of that period.
1: And in the first section of the book, you really tackle an assumption, which we talked about briefly, that there's a attitude towards violence that's um, different in Muslim Americans. And, And you describe that it's actually kind of in context similar across the board what looking more specifically at what muslim americans talked about in their view towards violent extremism what did you find when you asked questions about this
0: yeah i mean it, i you know the, well, the funny thing about you know this this book and the research is that bottom line takeaway is that muslims are just like all other americans you know so in talking with with folks you know the the mass majority are, or you know would say what you would expect any other American to also say is that violence is cannot be justified. You know we should we should engage, you know our use our you know institutionalized political process to address the issues of concern um, when asking about specific instances of violence by extremists. Most people are horrified. They want to see it stopped. they they want to feel safe. They also feel afraid. Um Just as anyone else would um so it's it's i mean the bottom line is that Muslims have the same reaction you know as other Americans um and that they want to be safe and um and they don't support that kind of violence um, you know as looking at this at the survey research and and um talking to other communities um you know we do see some nuance with um for example segments of the black Muslim community who have a very particular Relationship with law enforcement, and um, I would say some justified scrutiny based on their history um, with law enforcement. We saw in the, you know, 50s and 60s um, infiltration of different Black um, nationalists and Black Muslim communities by law enforcement, and that has definitely um, that um, orientation of of distrust is is still there, and we and we see it today. And so, you know, you definitely see that come out in the survey research and among both Muslims as well as um, and non-Muslims in some cases.
1: I want to put forward this next que- question in the context you provide in the book. With 3.3 3 million Muslim Americans, you state in the book that very few, I think less than 200, have been charged with involvement in a violent plot in the United States. So putting that context, which you provide in the book, out there and up front, you explore Muslim American communities involvement in disrupting plots or countering terrorism. Can you talk more about that again with the context that we're talking about a very a small in, but there's still relevant examples that you put forward in the book?
0: No, it's it's a great point. Um, you know, it just to highlight that, you know, approaching um this this research question, as you said, as 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 horrifying as it can be, as scary and, and important to address, you know, acts of terrorism are extremely rare, um, you know, again, and as you look at sort of the data of sort of the size of the Muslim community, you know, who's been charged, um, it's, it's a really small number. And so not surprisingly, most folks that I talked to, you know, um, they had they didn't they themselves certainly, and they did not know anyone, you know, who had even been close or near, you know, some kind of violence or extremism. So it was, you know, really in theory. And so really the book, the bulk of what it's really doing is exploring the attitudes and experience of these non-violent Muslims who s- still have to face the consequences of sort of this broad, um, fear of Muslims in the United States and and so that has to be you know set up front that you know look, we're talking to folks who are um, you know nonviolent normal citizens trying to you know get along and do well um, having to to grapple with with these consequences.
1: That context you offered about the the actual proportion of of people we're talking about and how rare these attacks are is, is critical. But also those circumstances have led to pressures and um, different things going on in the community where you, you provide some examples of where Muslim Americans have tried to speak out against extremism or or counter this type of narrative. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the examples you, you found in your research?
0: Yeah, I know. It, it, that was a really interesting um, theme that emerged when having these conversations, Um Many Muslims were very emphatic to um, address you know the these you know negative beliefs about muslims and, um, and the community has been extremely active um, in trying to redefine terms such as jihad, redefine how people think about Muslim Americans um, and how they talk about them um, and, and have been very proactive. We've seen different um, youth organizations emerge um, different um, policy organizations proactively engage with law enforcement, proactively engage with the media to try to change this narrative. Um, and I spoke with many young Muslims who felt like they wanted their leaders to do even more, to be even more proactive, you know, in, in changing this narrative and, um, um, again, engaging in creative ways to show Americans who Muslims really were. But it was interesting in some of these conversations, um, you know, while they felt it was important to speak out, some of them also felt a little frustrated. You know that that this burden was on them again, even though empirically the evidence was not there that they still had to proactively, in in the instance of any attack, um, you know, emphatically speak out and condemn it. They felt that that was a burden that is not shared by other groups. You know, when we see acts of extremism, we don't necessarily always expect every. You know, example today, like every, let's say Christian church to speak out against you know a, an act um, that is done from sort of in a more extreme um, you know Christian organization, for example. And so it was definitely an interesting tension there. Again, like knowing they want to speak out, want to change the narrative, but it was it feels like a burden to some.
1: Well and that really kind of segues into the second chapter where you're looking at integration and it rests on an assumption that a lack of integration is somehow connected to violence. Can you talk more about this issue of integration and what your findings were?
0: Absolutely. Yes. So we've seen in some of the earlier um, research on um, Muslim integration um, is really premised, again, by this assumption that a lack of integration leads to terrorism. So I'll just put it out there, that evidence, that link is not entirely clear. Um, But I I won't spend time, you know, asking about that. But that's what really drove, you know, to ask the question, like, how are, you know, Muslims doing in American society? Are they really isolated in some way? Are they really refusing, you know, to become a part of our society? And so, um, you know, to answer this question, you know, we, as scholars, don't have an agreed upon, way to measure integration. There's many different ways. There's many different concepts. There's a huge literature on this concept. But what I try to do is sort of take um, different features of integration, you know, that seem relevant across the different literatures and compare, again, Muslims to non-Muslims and and how are they doing. Um, And um, a big finding high level is that, you know, Muslims really reflect the broader American community across these various metrics, how they're doing economically, how they engage civically, um, their social relationships, um, you know, engagement in different key institutions, such as schooling and, um, different things like that. And even identity, um, we see that, um, basically by the time you get to the second generation, folks who are born and raised in the United States, they look just like other Americans to the degree that they identify as American. Um, and that's an important part of their identity. So that that was a really just an empirical look comparing Muslims again across a variety of metrics. And we see that, again, they look like the broader American population. We don't see um, any kind of sort of significant isolation or um, anything unusual there.
1: And so when you're looking at variables for integration, you're talking about things like um, for immigrants, for example, English language acquisition, Mm -hmm. uh, voting, things like that, right?
0: Right, exactly. So, you know, so even when I'm comparing Muslim immigrants, I'm comparing them to other immigrants in the United States, and we see high levels of English acquisition. We um, see again, high levels of naturalization, which is another in, in some research indication of, of integration as well. So we definitely see an attempt of Muslims and, um, you know, to really become a part and in, in again, increasingly look like American society, we don't see them falling behind in any significant way in any of these categories. So an issue that
1: you kind of hinted at earlier in our discussion about some of the generational stuff is that there seems to be a theme about integration and perception of fairness, having more of a generational component rather than necessarily a um, religious component. Can you talk more about that?
0: Absolutely. So um, a key finding of the book is that what um, appears to be the most integrated Muslims, um, those who are born and raised in the United States, full-fledged Americans, um, these individuals do appear to be the most frustrated by the sort of broad brush scrutiny on Islam and these assumptions of of violence and lack of integration, and we can imagine why. You know, they um, know their rights and presume those rights as Americans. They have the same expectations of treatment, you know, by the government as as their counterparts, their non-Muslim counterparts, and they share the sense of val- American values of fairness and equality under the law, and they expect that that be upheld. And so it's those individuals, again, who are most integrated that, again, are expressing the most discontent over these security policies that are wrongfully singling out Muslims for greater scrutiny. Um, and so that's a definitely a theme throughout the book where we see U.S.-born Muslims um, really being most vocal about their concerns around what's going on in the country as it relates to to Muslims. Did you see any differences
1: across American Muslim experiences in terms of discrimination?
0: Yeah. So, um, one of my chapters, I really dive into um, looking at expectations for how Muslims will be treated by the government and specifically by law enforcement. And that that chapter really most clearly il- illustrates um, that, you know, perceptions of discrimination and, again, uh, lack of fairness are strongest among those who are born and raised in the United States. That's really the group that's sort of really concerned about what's going on. But in particular, I found that this feeling among U.S. born Muslims is strongest among Black Muslims as well as Arab Muslims. They they elicited the strongest response um, and concern about Muslims being treated unfairly by law enforcement, and that was a theme I saw throughout the book in different ways of asking the question. Um, there was definitely more concern coming out of those those groups more than others.
1: And did those same differences translate into expectations of um, towards government and law enforcement in those same populations?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So what, what we saw was, um, again, particularly Black and Arab, U.S.-born Muslims being the most concerned about law enforcement treating Muslims specifically um, less fairly than non-Muslims in an, ev- in, in an investigation. Um, And in some cases, um, we saw that translate that, you know, fear of unfair treatment translate into those groups also being hesitant to engage with police proactively because they were fearful of being treated unfairly or being wrongly wrapped into some kind of investigation. Um, And again, if you look to the histories of these groups, this is not entirely surprising. As I mentioned, the Black Muslim community and the Black community in America more broadly has a very particular history with law enforcement um, that has led to, you know, again, a hesitant to proactively engage at times, as well as the Arab Muslim community, again, particularly post 9-11 stories and um circulating that, you know, if you go to local police, you could be referred to ICE, you could be referred to immigration authorities, you know, it could lead to deportation, even if there's not ground, but there was this fear Um, and and culture of fear um, of, again, being wrapped in wrongly into an investigation um, just based on your ethnicity. So these were sort of common conversations I heard and sort of that mapped onto the data um, sort of told a clear story there.
1: I want to ask you about the national security implications, which you, you know, highlight in the book. But before that, just specifically, these implications that you're talking about um, the lack of engagement with law enforcement, do these experiences potentially extend to individuals not taking advantage of government services or reaching out for assistance if they're the victim of the, of a crime and the safety of Muslim Americans in general?
0: Well, that, that's, um, that's certainly the fear. So, um, you know, notwithstanding, you know, the, you know, the U S born folks being most concerned about unfair treatment. Again, we definitely saw fear among immigrants as well um, where folks were worried that they couldn't even go to police for very basic things. You know, even if it had nothing to do with a terror investigation, it just was something going on with the neighborhood there there in my conversations, there is a sense of hesitancy of, of going to the police or law enforcement for any reason. And we know from other research with other groups, this is a, this is a common fear um, um, and concern when immigrants and vulnerable populations don't feel like they can go to police out of fear that um, just their mere contact will implicate themselves or their families. Um, and and we, we've heard this conversation um, again with, for example, undocumented communities in the United States. Um, and, and that's why for, for Muslims, for, for other communities, there can be a fear of sort of linking, for example, immigration authorities with local police. And some argue that those two functions should be separated so that individuals can go to police for their basic needs and protections and not be in fear of, again, a broader, you know, federal um, immigration issue, for example.
1: Now, broadening back to the national security implication How do these policies potentially have second or third order effects on security outcomes for the country as a whole?
0: Absolutely. Um, And, you know, this is, you know, I, I sort of surface, you know, these points just to say that we should all care about this. We should care about when a group of Americans is being wrongfully targeted by our policies. Number one, because We don't want to see a misallocation of resources. If this group is not actually a threat, we don't want to spend the enormous amounts of money we've spent, you know, monitoring and surveilling, um, you know, so on and so forth. Um, Number two, um, or actually, I, I shouldn't put this in order of what's most important. But, you know, the other point is, again, rights are being violated and that should be concerning to us all. But in a very practical way for the national security side of things, um, one um, interesting observation, you know, despite Muslims being fearful and concerned about engaging law enforcement, we've seen them engage anyway. In fact, um, there's some data that suggests that Muslims, since um, 9/11, have been the single largest source, um, you know, of tips to law enforcement that have stopped uh, terror attacks. So they've actually been very central their assistance to law enforcement has very been very essential to to our security as a country and we would hate for again wrongly um uh, applied policies to make muslims fearful of going to police that they do have useful information we don't we want to keep those lines of communication open both for our national security but also for the protection of those individuals um who want to engage law enforcement so that's just some of the few um, you know, externalities, unintended effects of some of these policies.
1: In light of your research, what recommendations would you make to policymakers to improve either existing policies or to improve outreach to Muslim communities?
0: This is a really um, tough question, which is is a very fair question. As an academic, we're sort of diving into the data and want data-driven approaches. And so my first ask would be that you know policies would would have true data behind it. But um, as far as how to approach the community, you know, this is a question that I asked respondents. And interesting enough, there is not agreement within the Muslim American community. Again, not surprising. This is an incredibly diverse community. Um, you know, looking at the Black community specifically, you know, we had folks who were um, affiliated and identify with. Um, the Nation of Islam, who um, did not have a desire to engage with law enforcement, even if it was to sort of improve policies, they they didn't want to sort of have that. At least with the folks that I that I spoke with and looking at the the survey data, whereas you know the the larger portion of the Black Muslim community is is not affiliated with the Nation of Islam. I see much more <clears throat> willingness to. Um, speak at the, you know, policy level and try to influence and engage on policies and seeing those policies change. And similar across other, again, segments of the Muslim community. Again, we see some wanting to um, <clears throat> be directly engaged with, you know, the White House with with law enforcement, sit on those boards, help craft those policies. And others saw that as problematic. Um, and and so there's there's. It, it, these are really complex issues and um, whether you're talking federal or local level, I think there, you know, there's, there's challenges and there's a long way to go. Um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, point to, you know, we should have more community engagement sports leagues. Um, but there has you know, been some damage done and we have some ways to go to rebuild trust because many fear that these type of community programs are just covers for surveillance again, because we did see that or or suspicions of that in past programs. And so there's a lot of distrust and not quite agreement on what exactly should be done. But certainly, again, we want to get to a place where we have full open lines of communications between the communities being served by law enforcement and law enforcement themselves.
1: Well, Rachel, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on now?
0: Absolutely. So, um, you know my work has sort of drawn me more to look at um and I hint at this at the book that you know a, a threat that is not as talked about um is that of sort of white supremacist violence anti government violence and so I've actually been sort of looking more at how the policy changes in the post 911 environment how that shapes how we look at these groups, how the government looks at these groups, and um, looking at proposals to change the laws to better address these groups and um, what unintended consequences that can have as well. So sort of shifting to look at, again, these other sort of um, threats of domestic terrorism and how they are looked at differently by the government addressed differently. Well, best
1: of luck with that project. And thank you for being on the show today.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Muslims in a Post-9-11 America, a survey of attitudes and beliefs and their implications for U.S. national security policy by Rachel Gillum is available now from the University of Michigan Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.